This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Nightlight has partnered with Fan Roll Dice by Metallic Dice Games to offer an exclusive discount on one of their gorgeous dice sets that we've fallen in love with because of their satisfying weight and, let's just be honest, sparklies not to mention their impeccably constructed dice accessories. In one word, velvet. Visit fanrolldice.com, that's F-A-N-R-O-L-L-D-I-C-E dot com, and use our discount code NIGHTLIGHT for 10% off any new additions to your dice hoard. A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code NIGHTLIGHT to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. Hi, I'm Tanya Ransom, creator and executive producer of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales written and performed by Black creatives from all over the world. This week's story is a perfect blend of noir, mermaids, and murder, with some heavy metal thrown in for good measure. But before we get to the story, just a reminder that all episodes are brought to you by the Nightlight Legion. Thanks to our newest patrons Emily, David, Nathan, Khalif Aziz, Kitty, Gilligan, Zenobia, Aaron, Kyle, Intellectrician, which is great, I like that, Rebecca, Kyle, Mary, Natasha, and Caitlin. Thanks to Christopher for increasing your support, and thanks to Jill for donating via PayPal. You all have my eternal gratitude. Again, Nightlight is 100% listener-supported, so we need your help to keep bringing you new episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash nightlightpod to join the Nightlight Legion and get a shout-out on the podcast. Now sit back, turn out the lights, and enjoy Mermaids in Cape Town by Mom Baguma Dean, narrated by William Litt. It's all zeros, really, and a little bit of rainbow gravity. If you have those two, you got it all. It gents, brother, and the mermaids walk to it. That's right. In fact, see that girl smiling at you across the bar? Careful with her song, son. That's all I'm saying. Dump the body in the ambulance and have a crew clean up the blood, Inspector Habana said to the young forensics officer studying the corpse. It's mostly gut, sir. The blood is gone, actually. All of it. The officer looked up at Habana's exhausted face and added kindly, Again, sir. The street corner glowed with revolving lights, a few orange street lights, a hundred smartphones, and the press should be there any second. Enough for an epileptic seizure, except the corpse didn't mind and the officers were getting used to late-night wake-up calls and dizzying crime scenes. Habana must have slept a total of six hours in so many days, and he was starting to feel irate, or perhaps he was irate from head to toe and feeling tired. The body was eviscerated and sucked free of blood. The eyes were gone, some of the bone marrow too, or so the autopsy would confirm eventually. Any witnesses? No one saw anything, Inspector, but those teenagers over there. He pointed at a group of three boys and a girl with tattoo sleeves standing across the street. They say they heard something. What? Thal, sir. Thal? What the bloody hell is Thal? Beats me, sir. Round them up and bring them to the precinct. Six bodies in a week. We're getting to the bottom of this thing, or it's our hides. Habana caught sight of a sandwich cart across the street. And grab me a mermaid tail sandwich, will ya? 
Solomon Plyke sliced the enormous fishtail in half through its length on his shop's counter, and again across its width into four distinct bits. He tossed the knife on the wall behind him where it connected magnetically and stuck there, and with a finer blade, he diced the fish meat into thinner slices, not quite sashimi, but close enough. People liked to eat the slices of fish like a thin steak, others wanted it sushied, at any rate, business was good. Mind cutting them slightly thinner, Saul? The customer asked, lifting up his hat and wiping his brow. My old ma's teeth, you know? They're gonna fall out if she keeps this up, but she can't get enough of your fish. So, sashimi it is, Saul thought. He wasn't the only one in Cape Town claiming to sell the highly praised mystery meat commonly known as mermaid tail, but he was the only one who actually sold it. A few artful entrepreneurs had figured out the right combination of fish meats and spices to give it roughly the same flavor and consistency, but you were getting shark, some squid too probably, and a lot of cheap curry. Every club, food truck, and wandering street vendor claimed to have it, but they always sold it ready-made, in sandwiches, mixed into your dish, or in cans like tuna chunks. You could only get juicy slabs and smoked tail at Saul's, and he was losing out. His stuff, the good stuff, was slightly pricier, but some of the higher-end restaurants would unwittingly support their menu with the real deal every once in a while, and some customers had a higher opinion of themselves than most people. He had thought of patenting it, but monopolies breed suspicion, and he couldn't have anybody wandering into the back of his shop. But even if they did, they would regret it. Painfully. <sighs> Saul said, sucking blood from his finger after slicing it by accident. You alright there? The customer asked, looking concerned. You don't still have the AIDS, do you now? He finished, laughing nervously and feigning jest. Nah, you're good, Saul said flatly, not looking up. If I had, I'd be long out of business. Fool, Saul thought. There hadn't been a single case of AIDS in five years that couldn't be cured with a steady diet of prescription drugs. Someone should have realized that if monkeys could pass the disease around and not contract it themselves, then people born with HIV would build up the same kind of immunity eventually and use it as a vaccine. That would have saved a lot of time. Saul suspected American pharmaceutical companies of knowing all along, but making a fortune in antiretrovirals was worth a few thousand deaths a year. He cleaned his hands and rinsed off the fish, pushing away the slightly bloody slices and giving only the thinnest cuts to his customer. Here, he said, handing him a neat parcel. I threw in some clams, surimi and the like in there too. Free of charge. Have a good day. The man smiled widely, handed the money over to Saul, tipped his hat and left. It paid to give out freebies and it kept his mind off the cut. Win-win. It was getting late in the afternoon. Little girls ran past his store in their school uniforms, chased by their older brothers and their friends, heading home or wherever kids went to play. It was time to get his guitar ready for rehearsals before the night's performance at Gandalf. They would rock, then hopefully he would get laid, and he'd be off on his fishing boat again in the morning. Can I get you guys anything? The waitress asked the three metalheads sitting at the bar. Yeah, love, one of them said. How's your mermaid tail sandwich? Not a big one for fish, she answered. But the customers love it. The guy smiled broadly. Excellent. Make that three mermaid tail sandwiches and three pints of lager. Not the Aussie piss though, yeah? Coming right up, she said, and hit the tap. Three mermaid tail sandwiches. Three, she yelled toward the kitchens. Thal! Thal! Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, Saul thought, tuning his guitar and listening to the screams of the crowd. They'd let the audience get nice and toasted, and now they were good and ready. Are you fucking ready? He yelled, striking a note on his guitar. The crowd roared back. All right, this one is called Ignite the Core, he growled into the microphone. Three, two, one, gent, tear your face from the screen. You are meant to bleed and be free. So, what do we got? 
Inspector Habana asked, pinning a picture of the latest victim to a board. He admittedly didn't have much to go by. He had the victim's pictures pinned up, but nothing or very little in the way of connecting dots or actual clues. Six bodies in six days. It sounded like clockwork, but they'd found two on the same day. It looked like a serial killer, but he couldn't have traveled from Greenpoint to Hoot Bay Harbor in the few minutes that separated both murders. One had been found on the street, another in a motel, and the bite marks didn't match. A serial killer would have been easier to deal with, but no murders today, so far. Not much more than we had this morning, said Lieutenant Von Hassen. We've interrogated the witnesses, but they're high as fuck, Inspector. Pardon my language. And? Well, they didn't see anything, but we did get down to the bottom of this thaw nonsense. And? Snapped Habana, getting frustrated at the general nonchalance displayed by his crew. He couldn't exactly blame them. There was little that linked the bodies besides the way they died and the fact that they were all men. It's a subgenre of extreme metal, sir, Agent Boak stepped in. It's a rallying cry, actually, something out of World of Warcraft. A Swedish band started using it. It went viral. You know, kids. Habana banged a fist on the table. What does it have to do with the damn murderers? Van Hassen raised a hand, asking him to calm down. Like I said, they're really high, but basically they were at some heavy metal bar. Apparently the guy was there, hanging with his girlfriend. They leave together. Next thing you know, she's gone and he's dead. Fall, they added. Fall. They're stone, sir. A lead. Finally. Any trace of his girlfriend? Abana asked. No, sir, but she's the lead suspect for now. I've sent out a description to all precincts, including Stellenbach, Wellington, and Malmesbury. We have patrols on alert, but, sir, even if we catch her... Yes, even if they caught her, they'd be left with five bodies without a culprit or even a suspect. And when it happened again... Thoughts. Thoughts. Yeah. Won't be much to show for, will it? He said sarcastically. Anybody know what they had inside the club? Drinks? Drugs? Agent Motsepe nodded. We've sent people back to collect glasses, cups, and stuff. Got a team doing a quick sweep of the restrooms for any lingering psychotropics, but that kind of crazy, whoa. Precisely, Agent Motsepe. Whoa. Anything else? He was gonna run out of sarcasm soon, and he might run out of bullets soon thereafter. Yes, Inspector, Von Hassen said. The DNA analysis from the first five murders came in. She looked up nervously and plodded on. Five different killers, nothing new there, but, and it's a big but, no pun intended, either the samples have been tampered with, the killer, killers are all using the same MO somehow, but either that or the killers are, she hesitated and took the plunge. Non-humans, sir. She spoke the last bit looking away from Habana's furious eyes, but he looked intrigued. Explain, he said, his face serious. Von Hassen's shoulders untensed noticeably. Well, sir, they had to send the samples to a marine biologist for confirmation, but he is positive there is some human DNA in there, but a lot of it is mixed with some kind of amphibian. Amphibian? You mean like a frog? No, sir. Something much more evolved than that. That's why we think the samples must have been tampered with, sir. Some kind of mix-up when we collected the data. Several of the murders happened nearer on the beach, sir. Perhaps something slipped in. Hard to tell. Something had to have slipped in if they had some kind of DNA-altering psychotropic on their hands. And what the fuck, anyway? Amphibian. Jesus, what do kids get high with these days? There is a pattern, though, Habana went on, hitting the board with a pin. These guys take things. Or do you suspect the drug, or whatever it is that alters their DNA, if that's what this is, makes them drink blood, suck out bone marrow, and chew eyeballs? Organs were always for sale. Strange trades, witchcraft, cannibalism. But these guys didn't seem to care much for organs, only bone marrow, blood, and eyeballs. Just the kind of thing to start a panic. It's just murder, ultimately. But he really wished it were a serial killer. 
No, we don't, sir, said Motsepe. That's why we... A junior officer barged into the room without knocking. Inspector Habana, we got a woman restrained in a freak murder at Mercury Live. Mercury Live? said Deboke. That's the heavy metal bar on Tenant Street. It's two minutes away. Then what are you waiting for? screamed Inspector Habana, already running down the hall. Hey, Cape Town PD, you stay right where you are. Nothing had stopped the fleeing naked woman from snapping the band's bass player's neck, and nothing would stop her now, especially not screams and a badge. And no matter how hard he tried, Inspector Habana couldn't get himself to shoot a gorgeous woman, or any woman, in the buttocks unless she shot him first. He considered giving her a good spanking when they caught up with her, and then cuffing her right and proper. She rounded a corner into a dead end. She couldn't have been stripping after hours at Mercury Live for very long, or she would have known she was cornering herself. Habana rounded the corner. The wall closing the cold sack was too high for her to have climbed it, but he couldn't see her. The alley was dark under the broken street lights, but the moonlight bounced off at an angle. Two trucks were parked, and smaller vehicles had crammed their way in between. It would be hell for the owners to get their cars out, and it would be hell for her. He pulled out his gun and walked down the alley cautiously. The woman was deceptively strong. She had ripped the bass player's head clean off, bone, tendons and all after snapping his neck, and it had taken eight bouncers to restrain her until she sent them all flying at the walls and ceiling. If she lurched at him at the knees, he could kiss his legs goodbye. A flapping sound caught his attention, coming from behind the second truck at the end of the alley. It sounded like someone had dropped a live salmon on deck. He tiptoed to the side of the truck walking along it mindful of shadows creeping underneath, and rounded the back of the truck. Freeze! To find himself pointing his gun at a topless naked woman with a six-foot-long fishtail, pitch-black eyes, and sharp teeth, snarling at him. What the fuck? Her upper body skin was changing tone, growing increasingly paler and translucent. He could almost see the nerves through her breasts, but her tail reflected the little bit of light in rainbow shades. She slid with lightning speed, spinning on herself, facing him flat on her stomach bared her fangs, and propelled herself towards his midsection. Habana unloaded three bullets right into her head. She went crashing back and slowly leaked away with a gurgling sound, her hair, chest, stomach, and tail melting until there was only a puddle of grayish water at his feet. There was no trace of the creature left, not a stain. Amphibian, he kept thinking as he backed out from behind the truck, his mind oddly clear while his body trembled all over. Amphibian. A crowd had gathered at the curb. Lieutenant Von Hassen caught up with him, out of breath. Damn, you're fast, sir, she panted. We thought you had her, then we heard the shots, came running, sir. Really sorry, sir. Glad you're okay, sir. Habana could barely hear the words she spoke to him. His eyes looked over her shoulder to a small sandwich truck standing outside the Mercury Live. Someone was buying what looked like a mermaid tail sand. He shoved Von Hassen aside and ran towards the truck, raising his weapon. Put that down. Don't you touch that. The tugboat's motor hummed gently over the small waves splashing against the hull. Saul stopped the engines, swallowed down the last gulp in his beer, crumpled it, and tossed it outside the window and into the Indian Ocean. There must have been incredible things down there, the equivalent of what passed for beer cans 500 years ago for one, bones, lots of those, and mermaids. Those last had been there much longer. The beer helped keep the bile down and his head straight. His head was a mess. He'd had too much during the show, could hardly remember half of it had woken up next to a random groupie, and couldn't remember that either. He'd been barfing his way home when he saw the front page, the freak murder and the vanishing stripper. He'd made his way to False Bay, untied the pick of destiny, sailed past the Cape of Good Hope, and into the open waters. He'd told them not to go rogue on him. He threw the anchor and let it sink to the bottom. The chain was covered in live prawn to bait small octopus and other mollusks and glue them to the chain. He had carved a space in the hole to retrieve them when he pulled up the anchor. 
He had done the same to the hole on the other side, except it filtered water and caught anything bigger than a seashell inside. It stunk to high heavens when he emptied the holes in False Bay, but it kept his counter and front window stacked. When the pick stopped drifting, he walked out on deck, pulled out his amplifier, plugged in his eight-string, and lowered his strings by two semitones for a D, G, C, F, A, D tuning, a whole step down, and let his guitar pick hit the strings. A round, powerful sound, full of bass and grit. Gent, brother. Gent. Those two extra strings made all the difference, really, and the only real catch worth his while. It had barely been six months since he'd discovered rainbow gravity and its effects on the world. Six months earlier. He tapped the intro to Sweet Child of Mine while the ship tangoed back and forth to the light waves under the cloudless sky of the open ocean. He liked to play the classics when he was at large, his dad's old compact discs. Electronic music was one thing, but besides evolving formats, vinyl, tapes, CDs, or MP3s, forwards, and whatnots, it all came down to the perfect riff. Strange things happened when he played on deck. The clouds didn't form a vortex and a tidal wave didn't magically appear. Life is not a music video, after all. But strange things happened nonetheless. Someone was humming along. It wasn't the wind filtered through the cabin windows and chimes, and it wasn't the odd rumble of the waves either. It was a hum, almost like a mantra. No matter what he played, the hum would rise around the boat a few seconds into his set. This was the Cape of Good Hope, or near enough, and strange things had been known to happen for centuries. The lore of yonder buccaneers heading for Asia, tales rooted in older fantasies of the deep, but every time he leaned over the railing, the humming would stop, only to start again when he picked up his guitar. Solomon had grown up fishing. His father had made self-reliance a point of honor, even in the late days of apartheid when neighborhoods went up in flames more often than they did not. He had hung on to his fishing boat as a young man. His mother had died of AIDS before the cure was made available, and with one less mouth to feed, his father had started a fledgling business that Saul had turned into a proper seafood store. Nice enough that when kids came home bored from school, they would stare at the aquariums and the rare shellfish swimming inside. He'd kept a baby whale shark for a while until it grew too big and he released it. Saul's store was as much a food shop as an aquatic museum of the delicious ephemeral. He never remembered completing a set. He would always feel drowsy halfway through and wake up to find his deck covered in rare shells and even valuable things sometimes. Ancient coins and old artifacts. There had been a pistol once and several bayonets. Nothing that worked, and he didn't pawn the older coins so no one came accusing him of robbing a museum. But the mystery was how they'd gotten there in the first place. He wasn't sleepwalking, or sleepfishing. The video camera he'd installed confirmed that. Rather, a few seconds after he'd fall asleep, objects and things came flying over the railing, as if the sea was trying to tip him for his set. He'd studied local coordinates, thinking that perhaps he was at a magnetic crossroad, the hum some kind of resonance, and the objects the result of some weird law of attraction coughed up by battling waves and snarky currents. He chalked it up to good luck after a couple of weeks and left it at that. He'd found the perfect spot. It stood to reason that there had to be one somewhere, and it was perfect. He never ran into competition, never had any bad weather. Commercial cruise ships floated away in the distance, but they never intersected with his route. The catch was always phenomenal, and all the extra bounty was gravy. But there it was again, riding along the waves and rising along the hole. It wasn't Axl Rose's serpentine harmonics. The hum was voiceless, but it fit every tune he played like a glove. A glove you could stretch to the point of infinity, with a lingering vibrato undulating over the surf. Singing over the aquamarine harmonics was uplifting. The words added a symphonic touch to the melody that soared like a choir of flying fish through the momentary rainbows filtered through sprinkles and evaporation. It was magnificent.
Saul tuned his guitar half a step down as he felt the usual drowsiness hit him. He let the waters absorb the last few notes like carbon monoxide and thought, let's see how the humming responds to this. There was still a melody to it, but not the lilting power ballad riffs of the early 90s. Instead, the grinding and heavy jazz core of the mid-twin-teens. Gent. Saul hammered away, repeating the intro riff over and again. For a moment, he forgot entirely about the humming, engrossed in the power of eight strings over six, until a clank of dissonant screams surrounded the boat. It wasn't a hum anymore, but several, as if different singers were trying to tune in to the melody and partake of its aggression. It was maddening, but he didn't feel the drowsiness. There was something vibrant about the cacophony. Perhaps it was anger or frustration at the dissonance, but it felt like something more. Three pairs of hands suddenly clamped the railings. He dropped the guitar that hit the deck with a clang of chords and stared at the hands across from him, turned to the other pairs hanging besides and behind him, and a naked woman, her hair and skin glowing in shades of rainbows, pulled herself over the edge. Her full breasts rubbed against the railing, her back and backside catching the sun's rays dazzlingly as her skin settled for a rich almond brown and her hair shone a deep black as she let herself drop onto the deck. To his side and behind him, he heard the same sound of bodies sliding onto his boat. Saul couldn't move. He was aroused and terrified. His hand picked nervously at the air as if he still held his guitar, hoping that he was dreaming the creatures into life or could magically send them back over the railing. She stood up, her stomach flat, her pubic hair shaved into a thin line, algae green eyes staring him up and down, weighing his manliness, and nodded. She turned and leaned over the railing, the perfect curve of her back revealing two round and firm cheeks dripping with salt water over long and thick thighs. She turned back to him, her arms holding a six-foot fishtail glowing in shades of rainbow, and dropped it at her feet. He heard things dropping around him in unison, but couldn't turn to look, transfixed by the creature's shining eyes, brown nipples, and lithe body. She walked up to him and grabbed his crotch, while two other hands lifted his shirt off from behind him and two more pulled angrily at his pants from the ground. He reached out between the first woman's legs, felt the dampness between her thighs and her lips closed on his while her breasts pressed against his chest. He fell asleep eventually, but not until much later. The mermaids called it rainbow gravity, the distortion and g-force caused by his guitar's frequencies and the mermaids' wild, non-human chanting that made them lose their tails and grow legs. He didn't understand it all, or at all, but he was in love with her moans. Of all three, one of them touched his soul through her voice, and even as the others would crawl naked over him insatiably, he only had eyes for her. You can call me Shuona, she had said, the name ringing oddly in his ears. Is that a mermaid name? He'd asked, still out of breath from their romp. I suppose you could say that. It's what it would sound like to you, anyway. She smiled, her face flushed with orgasm. Will you take us to the shore? We have never walked before. We would really like to walk, she said, with a hint of teenage wonder. Yes, yes, please, you can have our tails, the other two added. Looks to me like I just had, he thought lewdly, but said, Of course, I mean, I don't know exactly what I would do with your tails, but there used to be more mermaids once, Shuona interrupted softly, running her fingers through his chest hair. But when the first Spanish sailors found us, starving after days drifting at sea, they caught us for our meat throwing our human halves over the edge for the sharks. They hunted us almost to extinction, Saul, but you have found a way. We can walk now, and our tails are yours. They will make you rich. A taste of mermaid tail, and that's all they'll ever want. She was right. He was getting more, and better sex than he ever had, and his business bloomed for a while, until scavengers started selling knockoff mermaid meat. In one night, he woke up to an empty bed, and panicked flapping coming from the floor. Their tails had grown back. He stepped over them, their eyes now pitch black, and their teeth grown into fangs. Help us all, they yelled, their bodies yearning for water. He went for his guitar, but Shuona screamed. Water, Saul. Find us water, please. 
He nodded and rushed for the hose he used to fill tanks with salt water and sprayed his room with it. The mermaid sighed in relief while he rushed to plug his amplifier, but Chuona spoke again. It won't work again, Saul, she said desperately. Music only works once. Please find us a tank, please, and I will tell you how to help us. It was strange, dragging them across the floor by the arms while their huge tails trailed ahead, leaving shiny scales glued to the rugs and furniture they touched, and the tanks were small, their eight-foot bodies cramped into aquariums meant for displays. Saul was terrified. He had fallen for her singing moans hard, and all he ever heard when he was away from her was her soft murmur in his head. Unless he was performing, it was her song that let him know he was alive and loved. He dropped to his knees before her tank. What do you need? Tell me. Anything you need. What do you need? Her eyes stared into his hypnotically. She looked embarrassed even though her features had turned preternatural. Blood, she said faintly, and bone marrow. And eyeballs, he heard the other two answer in the other room. And he always needed more mermaids. The tails ran out quick, and now some of them were going rogue instead of coming back to his shop when they felt their bodies changing, assaulting random men for their nectar. They wanted to be free, and who didn't? But they had to understand that kidnapping people wasn't easy, and with one dying yesterday, he needed a new one if he wanted to keep up with demand. Eight guitar strings, but it only took one, and a pair of hands clamped the railing. Hurry up, will ya? He never leaves for very long. A hooded figure said to another in the backyard behind a small house adjacent to a seafood store. Easy, Amose. We've canvassed the neighborhood for weeks. We'll find his stash and be out in a jiff. Don't worry about it, said the second hooded thief as he picked the locked Saul's Seafood Emporium. A draft of iodine and fish loaded the air and hit them when they walked into Saul's storage hangar. It was cold, but manageable, and swordfish, octopus, and squid hung from hooks in the cold box like dangling spiders in haunted houses. It stinks like a swamp, Kwane, Amose said, but the Kwanile just shrugged and walked on. Any idea where he keeps the dough? Amose asked again. Where would you keep it? He pointed at a refrigerator that didn't quite conceal a trap door heading to an underground storage room. Right in there, he said, grinning. His acolyte looked annoyed, but they pushed the fridge out of the way, lifted the concealed door, and made their way down a small flight of steps. The room was dark, but a glow came from another room in the back and a humming made its way from it into the burglar's ears. Hear that? Mose asked and laughed snidely. Guy left the radio on for the fish, Kwane grunted, and they tiptoed to the door. They peeked inside, the light melody drifting from two giant tanks where four extremely large fish swam around each other. Dude, Amose exclaimed, check out the size of those knockers? Kwane Lei finished, his eyes glued to the pair of breasts that appeared as one of the fish made a turn towards the glass. The sight of her chest was enough for them to forget for a second too long that a human being didn't end with a fishtail, or a fish with a human head, but long enough for the other three mermaids to notice them and start crooning louder. They came closer, subjugated, their eyes wide and bright. The mermaids leapt from their tanks, breaking the waters with barely a splash, landed on the two intruders and tore their stomachs open with their teeth, singing all along. The duo died with a smile on their face, never protesting a single bite. Saul stepped out of his truck with his catch wrapped in a blanket, shivering slightly, and found the back door broken in. Fuck! He ran down the flight of stairs and into the concealed room to find four naked women, their eyes feverish with excitement, opening their arms at him, their skins and eyes settling on the hue they favored, and the stench of rotten breath and feces hit his nose. There were two bodies on the floor, or rather two cracked shells, their bowels spilling out. Their spines ripped out of their backs, sucked dry of marrow, were discarded in a corner, and their eye sockets stared emptily at the ceiling. The girls had stacked their tails neatly by the door. Saul turned to the mermaids, an angry look on his face. 
You don't need the eyeballs. What did you take the eyeballs for? The mermaids put on coy looks, their eyes averting his own, and Shuona answered timidly. It's the tastiest bit, licking her upper lip. Inspector Habana wiped bile from his lower lip, spitting sticky bits of rotten fish into the toilet bowl, and hurled some more. This fucking guy, he thought. It was his third sandwich that morning in so many places, and his stomach was already acting up. He wiped his mouth again and spit one last time before getting up, buttoning his raincoat and stepping out of the stall. He washed off his hands, cleaned out his mouth with some water, and drank a little to settle his stomach. The cold water hit his bowels and sent them lurching up again. He pushed down the little acid left and gargled the taste out of his throat. He pushed the double doors, walked back to the common room, picked his hat off the bar, pointed at the bartender, and said, I'm putting the Department of Sanitation on your ass, and stormed out of the dive. He headed home and threw himself on his bed, his stomach still working its way around whatever rotten seafood or excessive spices the cook had tossed in the sandwich to cover the taste and smell. He burped up something foul. Mermaid tell my ass, he said to the ceiling. Paid leave is still work, even if everybody thinks you're crazy. Especially if everybody thinks you're crazy because no one but you is following your leads. He wasn't crazy, but go tell your colleagues about a disappearing stripper with a tail like a fish who dissolves when you shoot her after you've assaulted a civilian and threatened to shoot a street vendor. Even Von Hassen, who'd suggested they might be non-humans, didn't back him up. He had ridden them pretty hard for a few days, but now he was off the force until further notice, while every precinct across the city raved about Habana's meltdown. He'd use his time to do some research. There'd been rumors of mermaids here before the Europeans came, but they were freshwater creatures with healing powers and the like. Some Shona thought they slept at the bottom of wells, for all the good that did them, but nothing like the thing he'd seen in the alley. That beast wasn't trying to heal anybody. He lit a cigarette. He'd been on leave for a week and covered 20 different spots a day for the first three, 15 on the fourth, 10 for the last two days, and three today. He had thrown up 17 times and compounded diarrhea with dysentery on at least two occasions, and the streak of murders had halted. Frickin' mermaids. It was unbelievable, but at least now he knew the culprit's species and how the fast food trend had started. All he had to do was sample every single sandwich in town and keep track of the best and or most reputable and he'd find the original thing. Whoever had the real mermaid meat was the person behind this. Real mermaid meat. Unbelievable. None of the crap he'd eaten so far was mermaid tail, but how could he know if it was? It all looked like tuna when you dug in. He was hoping to get more done by day's end, but at the going rate, he put out his cigarette, flipped over, and pulled the blinds for a nap. He was heading for Gandalf later. Tequila would help with the bacteria. Let your heart burn your eyes, fill the truth through the veneer of lies, and let yourself fly. The band, Wretched Wings, had a mean singer and guitar player, he had to give them that, and pretty good lyrics considering the genre. Hey, Habana yelled at a loitering barmaid. Another shot. Gandalf was packed. Couples, single women, the barmaids. He kept an eye on all of them. Thaw! Fans screamed in the audience. The waitress walked up to him. She was blonde and thin, almost diaphanous, with long hair down to her tailbone. Here it is, she said, her eyes on his. It's your third tonight, and that's after four lagers. You're off in a little and you need me to pay up, huh? No, she answered. Was about to say you might want someone on point to catch you when you try standing up. She winked at him. I'm a much more interesting person laying down than standing up, believe you me, he said, winking back. She giggled and walked away, throwing him a look over her shoulder. Remove the veil that blinds, connecting energies inside and outside to redefine. He shot the mescal and lit a cigarette. You had to appreciate Gandalf's new liberal policies, 
but so few people smoked nowadays it was almost embarrassing being seen in public with one. Habana hadn't touched the mermaid tail sandwich sitting on the table in front of him. He was famished, not least by the two liters of beer sitting in his stomach begging for anything to soak them up. He'd reached the point where the thought of food made him sick. The more he looked, the more the flavors and smells crept back into his mind, and he almost raised a hand for another shot, but didn't. He had to be sober enough to sample and file this one down under sardines and diced onions. It was amazing that people got away with labeling food whatever name they pleased, but that's exactly what he'd done with several people he'd arrested. He opened the sub and peeked at its innards. The usual mix of salad, tomatoes, and sprinkled pieces of fish in between with a large side of fries. Garbage. But he picked up a few flecks and landed them on his tongue. The muscle was numb with mezcal, but it was the same stuff he'd had two dozen times. What everybody would agree was the stuff, except it wasn't. If only he had access to the forensics lab, he could run some tests and get to the bottom of this without his stomach bottoming up. Police work was luck half the time anyway. The waitress walked up to his table. This time, I am off duty, she said. Care to walk me home? Only if you catch me when I get up, he said smiling. She giggled again. Thank you, Gandalf. Thal. Solomon stepped out of the service door of the club past two smiling girls dressed in short shorts, drawing on a reefer in the small corridor. He had business to take care of. Admittedly, it would be easier if they fed on girls, too. The back alley was empty save for a couple of guys who'd been at the show smoking cocaine behind his car. Just his luck. Hey, that's no Bentley, but it's not a glass table either, dig? He spat at the two cokeheads. Dude, one started, coughing on the smoke and passing it to his friend. You're Saul from Wings, man. I thought I might have been that guy, Saul said. Let me get a hit of that, will ya? The other guy handed the smoke over. Sure, bro. It was good coke. Sweet stuff, Saul said. You guys liked the show, huh? For sure, definitely. Sorry about your car, by the way. That's all right, guys. You guys play a little? Saul asked. Yeah, man. I drum. He's on bass, answered one of them. Cool. Tell you what. That's some good stuff you got. The rest of the band is catching up with me with a few girls to jam at my house. You guys hit us up with the blow, and we hang out together. Deal? Hook yeah, man. Ball. Cool. What's your names? Saul asked. Patrick. The drummer answered. Vinesh, the bass player said. Saul shook their hands and nodded at them, walked around to the front right seat, opened the door, and started the engine. Hop in. Please, man, Vinesh implored, his eyes darting between the floating hybrids in the tanks and his hypnotized bandmate smiling adoringly at the creatures whose eyes and smiles spelled syrupy death. Last week's catches. Saul had handed them beers laced with barbiturates the moment they'd walked in, and they'd woken up in two small cages in the basement, staring at a Disney movie gone wrong. Are you comfortable? Saul asked. Vinesh's jaw dropped. Saul had felt bad the first time he'd done this, but they wouldn't feel a thing. Hell, they would likely enjoy getting shredded, and Vinesh would be under the spell soon too. He'd feel so happy Saul had brought him here, there was no point feeling any guilt anymore. I'm alright, he answered, shaking in waves, terrified into compliance. I'm all right. Good. I'll turn the lights off now. Vinesh's eyes screamed at him. But don't worry. The tank lights glow a little. There's water behind you if you need it. Saul knew he wouldn't even want to drink, but Vinesh nodded. Just let the music rock you to sleep. I'll be back in the morning. He shut the lights and stepped out, expecting to hear Vinesh complain, but he was silently staring ahead at the fishwomen, swirling around each other under a blue glow. Habana's heart tugged at him as she disappeared into the bathroom. She was flexible. A veritable contortionist. He'd been with pole dancers before. He could testify that they were amateurs. She could kick her legs higher than a Zulu dancer, planting her toes behind her head and using them to lift up her waist. And she didn't quite moan. It was smoother, 
softer, songful. He could still hear it. He could practically taste it. She had salt on her lips, and her body had a velvety slickness, as if she sweated thin, licorice-sweet moisturizer. He turned to smell her pillow. He hadn't done that since he was a teenager. Something caught his eye, a tiny fleck that jogged his memory. It looked like glitter, but it stuck to the skin like a contact lens, a contact lens that didn't settle on one color. He lifted his finger to catch the light cracking through the curtains. It sparkled iridescent and had an organic quality to it, like a fish scale. The spell faded like an uppercut. He rolled out of bed, landed on the ground by his raincoat, and happily found his gun still in its holster. There were more of the scales lying around. Not many, but there were some on the furniture and along the bedpost, on the floor, walls, and sheets. Rainbow scales, like the creature in the alley. He had been so obsessed with finding the source, he hadn't bothered to ask himself an essential question. Why would mermaids drain people of blood and marrow? The creature he'd shot had killed a man shortly before turning, no more than a few minutes, and then she'd tried to eat his stomach. What if they needed the blood to keep their legs? What if they started growing their scales back before they turned? Steam came from the shower, the door slightly ajar. It hit him like a kettle of boiling water. His body temperature had dropped with fear as he did the math. Needles prickled his fingers, and his gun weighed a metric ton. He peeked through the doorway, trying to catch her reflection in the mirror through the mist. Her body came and went, the shower curtain open in the back of the tub, but her diaphanous tone was noticeably clearer, and nerves like varicose veins glowed under her skin. He kicked the door in and unloaded six shots at the shower curtain. Gray water spilled over the tub and under the curtain onto the bathroom floor without a sound. Close, and he had to get away. He climbed out the window and made the jump from the first floor window, landing hard on his ankle. Really close, he thought again, but he wouldn't achieve anything killing them, and he couldn't capture them either. He'd almost been brunch. Fuck's sake, but they were everywhere. He limped down the street looking for another sandwich. Ten days later, Habana was 20 pounds lighter. He had sampled over a hundred purported mermaid tail sandwiches, and it was killing him. If this was to be the outcome, he might as well have let the mermaid finish taking her shower and feast on him. He had thought he'd managed to find his mark within a week, but supply and demand thwarted his efforts. There were new people migrating from the countryside every day, and guess what business they picked up first? There were literally hundreds of fast food joints peddling mermaid tail in some form or another. It didn't matter if they tasted the same anymore. All that mattered was how you called it and how sassy you were with your customers. There would be mermaid tail turf wars between the hobo and transient mercantile any day now, and all Habana would get for it was more indigestion and gas. Hey, get that bum away from my cart, a street vendor yelled as he saw Habana approach him. He was gaunt and unshaven, his skin was ashy, and there were vomit stains on his raincoat and shoes. Habana was having a hard time sleeping through the indigestions, and his personal hygiene had taken a hit. Several people backed away from him as he wandered down Barnett Street, including the people around the food truck clutching their purses, buttoning up their coats, and shoving their hands deep in their pockets over their wallets. If there was a real pickpocket in the crowd, he knew exactly where to strike now. It was amazing how people couldn't grasp that the criminal mastermind seldom looks like one. Cartoons have a long-lasting effect on people. Come to think of it, he didn't look his best for the gardens, and they probably were not going to let him in at Aubergine. Not looking like this, not without a reservation. It was his last shot. If he couldn't use his badge to bully them into letting him inspect the kitchen, he'd sign up for counseling and get back on the force. To hell with mermaids, someone else would find out eventually, and let them try a hundred rotten fish gut sandwiches a week. Habana walked up to the restaurant, but the front door was still closed. He checked his watch, it was barely 6pm, they wouldn't be open for another hour. 
and he couldn't raise suspicion wandering about, so he made his way round the back, his life turning into a series of unfortunate back alleys, leaned against a wall and lit a cigarette just as a small pickup truck pulled up at Aubergine's delivery exit. The driver stepped out wearing a baseball cap, walked around to the trunk and took out three heavy fish boxes and carried them one by one to the door. He hadn't noticed Tabana smoking, but didn't look like he cared if anyone saw him. Don't get excited now. They need fresh fish for their little scam, he thought. Aubergine wouldn't stoop to serve its customers the dregs that washed up on the beaches, but he kept an eye on the delivery guy as he knocked on the back door. Saul, my man, Habana heard a voice say. You got that good mermaid, huh? No doubt, he heard Saul answer. But the rate is up a little. Gotta keep up with the competition. You wouldn't want me running out of business, would ya? Habana smiled. There was no competition, just scrap. You know how much we'd pay you if you just told us how you get your fish to taste that fresh, right? The staff member said. One of our cooks tried. Three customers caught food poisoning. He quit. One of them was a kid. Mr. Equestrian Tournament or some shit. Her parents are suing him. How does he get the fish to taste that fresh? Habana wondered. Saul laughed. Ha <laughs> Now I know you want to run me out of business. That's an extra 50 rant a pound. He heard Saul flip through a wad of bills and say, 120 pounds. You still owe me six grand, Mac. One hundred twenty pounds of fresh mermaid tail? hundred twenty pounds? Here you go, man, Mac said. We'll be in touch. All right, brother, Saul answered back. Habana's smoke was almost out. Saul saw him as he made his way back to the pickup's door and nodded at him. Habana nodded back. The driver got into the truck, took off his hat to wipe his brow, and Habana caught a glimpse of him in the wing mirror. A guitar riff and a growl rang through his ears. He caught a whiff of the mutant barmaid and thought, Oh, that's my guy. He typed Saul and seafood into his smartphone, and there it was. Saul's Seafood Emporium. You said you loved me, Saul. Shona's voice sounded pained. There was longing in her song, longing for his arms. I do, Saul responded pleadingly. Of course I do. You know I do, but then why, Saul? Why don't you set us free? Saul couldn't see what was happening, but Habana could. And now that the mermaid's crooning was focused on Saul, the two prisoners he kept in cages in the corner could see it too. The mermaid wasn't pleading with her lover. She was baiting her prey. There was nothing feminine about her at all anymore. Her eyes were thin vertical slits and the features on her face had grown distorted. Her nose was gone, as if the tip had fallen off, leaving only another vertical slit, slightly undulated, two lips lined with suction cups, drawing water in with little bubbles. Her mouth was a round hole, intersected with layers of fangs that kept it gaping open. She was still female, but there was little human left. Saul took a step towards the thing in the tank. Habana pulled out a small pocket mirror and angled it to get a better sense of the room. Saul couldn't see him with his back turned. He was in full sight of the mermaids, but it looked as though, powerful as they were, the beasts could only focus on one thing at a time. The prisoners were four feet from the door. He couldn't take a clear shot at the mermaids, but with Saul standing in the way, he could crawl up to them out of sight and pick their locks. It had been easy enough picking the lock to the Emporium's back door, and when people liked a lock, they almost always used the same. If anything went south, he'd shoot at the tanks and make a run for it while the mermaids had their way with them. He took off his raincoat, lay down on the ground, and crawled into the room. I keep you fed, Saul went on, oblivious to Inspector Habana behind him. I keep you happy, don't I? He took another step. Habana felt a pang of pity for the guy, and just that instant realized that he too had slept with one of those things. He held back a gasp and looked up. The two prisoners were staring at him, their eyes somewhere between joy, disbelief, and the fear of what might happen if they did anything stupid. 
just the look Habana wanted to see, and it calmed his own nerves. You do, my love. You've been so good to us. Habana tried to drown the voices out as he got on his knees before the cages, a finger on his lips, but they kept talking. So good that once we've fed tonight, we won't need to feed for a year, my love. What will we do? Cape Town is too small, my love. We are of the wild. You must set us free. Saul took another step. The crooning covered the tiny clicks of Habana working the first lock. It snapped open. He pulled it out and raised his hand when he saw how excited the kid was. Neither of them could have been more than 20. The boy froze and nodded. Habana started working on the second lock. The kid inside was shaking like a feather, his eyes flashing between Habana and Saul's back. It snapped a little louder than the first had, and the crooning stopped. They kicked the cage doors open in Habana's face, knocking him back and darted for the door, screaming, You ungrateful fucks! Habana saw them make it, got to his feet, took two steps, and Saul tackled him at the waist, slamming him into the wall, and the crooning started again. Saul jumped to his feet, heading towards the tanks. He turned, remembering Habana, and dragged him up against the wall. The crooning intensified, and Saul hooked him in the gut. See, my love, the mermaid said sweetly, you can't protect us anymore. They're on to you, my love. Set us free before they catch you and trap us. Free us. Yes, free us. Habana was getting to his feet against his will. He tried turning to the door, but his neck muscles threatened to rip with resistance. Their song was a net. He strained to turn away until he felt his spine tingle with painful discharges. He was out of breath and he hadn't moved an inch. His foot drew him forward, closer to Saul. Saul stared beatifically at the swimming half-breeds, his mind gone. Come swim with me, my love. Come dance with me in the water. The song burst like an orchestra, drawing Saul in closer to the tanks. Habana held back, each step taking several painful seconds, but the mermaids were excited again, eager, and they were focusing most of their attention, most of their power, on Saul. His gun was still in its holster, but it might as well have been on Table Mountain. His shoulder would rip if he tried to reach for it. The mermaids had their faces to the glass, staring and singing at Saul. The tension in his shoulder abated. He stretched his arm a little more than an inch. Just dive, asshole, dive! Their black hair floated over their heads, their bodies almost completely transparent, revealing their veins, nerves, and beating organs. Their fingers had turned to claws, but their tails glowed with rainbows, the different hues changing the navy blue of the cave to purple and shades in between, painting new colors along the spectrum. Saul's hands caught onto the tank, and he began pulling himself up, the mermaids rising along with him on the other side of the glass. His shoulders reached the top of the tank. The mermaids reached the edge of the water and swam a few feet away, circling each other in the middle of the aquarium. Saul pushed himself up, whispered, my love, and dived in. He swam there for a moment, smiling underwater. The mermaids approached him gently, swimming around him in tightening circles, and closed in on him with their fangs and claws. The waters bubbled, went blurry turned deep red, and the crooning halted. Habana felt the pressure release, put all the will he had left into getting a hold of his gun, pulling it out and pointing it at his head. He saw the mermaids turning towards him in the blood-filled waters, cloth caught in their fangs, and pieces of Saul's body hitting the bottom of the tank behind them. Habana smiled and pulled the trigger. Joanna pulled her pants over her underwear and clasped her bra. She felt full, and her legs were solid, none of the constant pain as the blood coagulated in her veins, and the marrow slowly ran out. Her tail lay on the floor along with her mates. They wouldn't need them for a while. One of them was jumping up and down in her underwear, her eyes gleaming with excitement. This feels good, she yelled. She landed and bounced back up, her palm slamming against the ten-foot ceiling, fissuring it with a crack. Shuona looked down at the dead cop bleeding through a hole in his head, still grinning. She couldn't drink his blood, but it didn't matter. 
there was still her favorite morsel. She leaned over his body and reached down with two ripping sounds. She popped something in her mouth with a juicy crunch, turned to her friends with an eyeball in her open hand, and said with a smile, there's some dessert left. Who's still hungry? Thanks again to our patrons for supporting this podcast. Because of your support, listeners around the world get creepy stories in their ears every other week. If you want new episodes every week, the only way for that to happen is to join the Nightlight Legion by going to patreon.com slash nightlightpod to support this podcast. You can also make a donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash nightlightpodcast. If you're unable to support us financially, word of mouth is the next best way to help. Give us a shout out online on Twitter or Instagram at nightlightpod or like us on Facebook at nightlightpod. Reviews are also a huge help, so be sure to leave a few kind words on your podcast platform of choice. Audio production for this episode by me, Tanya Ransom. You can find me online at Miss Defying. And to thank you for listening until the very end, we have a creepy fact for you. In Hans Christian Andersen's original version of The Little Mermaid, the mermaid must marry her prince or she dies. Not only that, but as a mermaid, she's soulless, so she'll be double dead if she can't marry him. The prince, of course, is in love with someone else, and the little mermaid dances at his wedding. But all hope is not lost. She can kill the love of her life to save herself. But she chooses not to, only to be dissolved into sea foam. Yikes. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.